My name is Elise Neville, and this is Wrestling Before God Season 2, Episode 1, an introduction to the Pearl of Great Price and the Old Testament. This is Wrestling Before God. It's the podcast where I, Elise Neville, an average member of the church, research some of the big questions that come up for me during this week's Come Follow Me lesson. Thanks for being here. It is a new year, and that means a new set of scriptures to study in 2022. I have been looking forward to the Old Testament for a long time. I've always kind of approached the Old Testament with this sense that it was full of mysteries that I would never be capable of understanding. I'd start to read, and I just had the hardest time making sense of the stories and the ideas taught in the Old Testament. And I knew there were some people who'd figured out how to unlock those mysteries in the Bible, and I could learn from them, but I didn't know how to start unlocking that myself. I don't know if you've had that experience, but because of some really helpful resources, I have been making progress with this problem, and I will share with you some of the things that have helped me feel like I can begin to make sense of the Bible on my own. Today, I also want to share a little bit of my struggle with the book of Abraham and some of the insight that that struggle has given me into Revelation and the misconceptions I've had about how Revelation works. But before we dive into those separate books, I want to talk about a couple of ideas that I've been thinking about as they relate to Scripture. So, I was an English major in college, and I read a fair amount, and I think a lot about literature and language and the truth that comes out of stories. And I've been thinking a lot about great works of literature that I love, like Les Mis or Jane Eyre. And I've been thinking about how, although the facts of those stories aren't true, the stories themselves are true. And if you've never read Les Mis, Jean Valjean steals a loaf of bread and gets imprisoned for many years. And although he never actually stole a loaf of bread and he wasn't a real person, Many of us have experienced or witnessed injustices that have the potential to alter the courses of our lives. That part of the story is true. And although Jane Eyre also wasn't a real person, and she was never proposed to by the love of her life, Rochester, who was a married man, many of us have also experienced having to make gut-wrenching choices that pit our consciences against our strongest desires. That part is true. Those books convey some really profound truths of the human condition, although they don't contain many facts. At the same time, when we only ever know just the facts of an event, we miss really important truths. So I'm going to give an example of Jane Eyre here, and if you haven't read it, that's totally fine. You might even get the point better. Let's say that Jane Eyre was a real person, and by some modern miracle, let's say that we had like a Google Nest camera in her bedroom, (laughs) and the camera footage shows us that Jane left her room in a wedding dress, and we know that she comes back home early into her bedroom, and she just collapses on the bed for hours, completely silent. We see the facts. We see when she left. We see when she returns. We see her fall on the bed. (laughs) 
But what we miss entirely in this camera footage is the beautiful internal dialogue that Jane has going on in her head and all the ideas she has about herself and her fiancé and the life that she wanted and the epic dilemma she has about the choices before her and the reasons that she has for making her choices. The camera footage does tell the truth, but it doesn't tell the whole truth. I know this because I have a Google Nest camera in my living room, and sometimes I pull the camera footage so I can save memories we've had, we've made as a family. But I am always very disoriented by the camera footage because I'm seeing the event from a much different perspective. It's a perspective that's totally devoid of my thoughts. The smile on my face never captures the joy that I'm feeling inside and the words of love that I say to my children never fully capture the depth of my feelings. You can probably recall your own personal memory or an experience of maybe an epiphany. And if you were to write the camera footage bullet points of that event, it wouldn't fully convey the truth of your experience. It may not even touch on your experience. Maybe the significance of that memory is only found for you in the emotions you felt or the thoughts you were thinking. The facts of the event don't match the truth of what you lived. And everything we experience, every event, requires our interpretation to give the event meaning. Two people can look at the same event and interpret it really differently, making it mean different things to them. And both interpretations can be true. Author Yann Martel states this beautifully, quote, The world isn't just the way it is. It's how we understand it, no? And in understanding something, we bring something to it, no? Doesn't that make life a story? Close quote. And story is the way that scripture is told. In the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price— Scripture is a story that gives us perspective on the way God works with his people and how we're meant to interact with each other. And the story isn't told from just God's perspective alone, because, I mean, scripture is recorded by people. And people didn't go into, like, trances with their writing pen as they received the word of God. These people writing the scriptures came to it with their unique perspectives, and they brought that perspective into the scriptures. And the time in which they lived also influences that perspective. Brigham Young talked about this phenomenon. He said, quote, When God speaks to people, he does it in a manner to suit their circumstances and capacities. Should the Lord Almighty send an angel to rewrite the Bible, it would in many places be very different from what it is now. And I will even venture to say that if the Book of Mormon were now to be rewritten, in many instances it would materially differ from the present translation. According as people are willing to receive the things of God, so the heavens send forth their blessings. Close quote. Bible scholar Tim Mackey puts it this way, quote, After humans are created, God's work in the world by His Spirit is almost always through human agency. When the Spirit works in the world— the visible nature of his work is the actions of humans. Because of this, it should be no surprise that the words of the human authors of Scripture are more than just part of how God communicates. They are the way God's divine word is communicated. Close quote. Joseph Smith took his role as a prophet and a communicator of the divine word very seriously, and he saw that his own human limitations could cripple the full meaning of God's word. He 
really lamented the inability of human language to adequately explain. And in a letter to W.W. Phelps, Joseph wrote, quote, O Lord God, deliver us from this prison, almost as it were, of paper, pen, and ink, and of a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language, close quote. And when we know that Joseph struggled with language in this way, it really makes sense to me that we see Joseph requesting help from colleagues to to revise and edit his revelations to help him more accurately share the meaning that he intended. According to scholar Terrell Givens, quote, Smith considered revelation to be a process susceptible of error, imperfection, and improvement, a prolonged struggle to capture in words those images, thoughts, and impressions born of the Spirit, close quote. And we see a similar pattern from the Bible authors and editors. Again, from Tim Mackey, quote, We don't encounter the Hebrew Bible in the form of what Moses was writing in the wilderness or what Isaiah or Jeremiah were originally writing. What we have is a highly polished, interconnected museum exhibit created by a set of hands at the very end of the process, which created a polish or a glaze over the whole thing to make it unified. It helps to think of these editors as also filled with the Spirit. It's not just the original authors, but it's the authors and editors that helped shape the story later too, that are part of this Spirit-filled community that wrote the Bible. Close quote. So as I've started to think through these ideas that stories in the scriptures convey important truths in a way that only story can, and that those stories are told from perspectives that can vary according to who is telling the story, and that there are multiple hands at work in writing and editing these stories, I've wondered, how can I be sure that what I'm reading is scripture? What makes these texts different from other inspiring literature? And something that J. Reuben Clark has said has been really helpful to me. He said, quote, We can tell when the speakers of scripture are moved upon by the Holy Ghost only when we ourselves are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. In a way, this completely shifts the responsibility from them to us to determine when they so speak. Close quote. I find that perspective really useful, but sometimes I'm not even that sure if I can be certain that I'm moved upon by the Holy Ghost. So another perspective that's been helpful is something Terrell and Fiona Givens have said in their book, All Things New. They say, quote, does what I am reading expand my heart and mind or does it harrow the mind? and constrict the heart, close quote. And thinking about scripture in that way has been really helpful to me because it makes the way that I come to the scriptures totally different. I come to the scriptures expecting to encounter imperfect humans who God is working through. And this perspective has totally broadened my thoughts on scripture and inspiration in general, and has made me feel more like God might be willing to work through me too, as a really flawed human who wants to use my agency for his purposes. So with that foundation, which for me clarifies what scripture actually is, let's get into the Bible and the Pearl of Great Price. I want to start with the Pearl of Great Price and specifically focus in on the book of Abraham, because I have been working on my personal beliefs on that book for a while. <laughs> because the origin story of the book of Abraham is a little tricky. There's a long backstory, but essentially, Joseph Smith acquired a collection of ancient papyri, which he clearly believed to be a record of Abraham and Joseph. 
And he began a process of what he called a translation, like translating from the language of Egyptian into the language of English. But it turns out the Book of Abraham isn't a traditional translation, because we actually have some of the fragments of papyri, and those have been evaluated by modern Egyptologists. And according to the church's website, quote, None of the characters on the papyrus fragments mentioned Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the Book of Abraham. Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree that the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the Book of Abraham. Close quote. So, I'll be frank here. That bothered me for a long time. <laughs> it concerned me that a prophet of God believed that he had papyri belonging to ancient forefathers when he clearly didn't. I spent a lot of time thinking about my conflicting ideas here, the first idea being that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, and the second idea being that he was mistaken about the contents of the writing on those papyri. I spent a long time holding these ideas in my hand and rotating them like those Baudin balls that we talked about in the last episode. And then I did a lot of research on the topic. I read books by Hugh Nibley and Terrell Givens. I read the church articles on the Book of Abraham. And I reached out to people who I knew were familiar with the topic, like my Uncle Steve and my dad and friends of mine from work and college. And I had lengthy conversations with them about their own perspectives on this topic. And I learned a lot of amazing things in my research. I learned about ways that the Book of Abraham fit in with ancient worldviews and Egyptian practices. And I learned that the Book of Abraham contains content that is backed up by ancient texts that wouldn't have been known to Joseph Smith. And I was reminded that the Book of Abraham contains a lot of chiasmus and other poetic structures that Joseph Smith didn't know about that make it literarily consistent with ancient poetic literature. But none of the conversations that I had with my friends and family about the Book of Abraham ever really touched on a single one of these points. What my friends kept returning to was the idea of revelation and how it works, they talked to me about how they spent time evaluating their assumptions about revelation and seership. They reminded me that although Joseph used the word translate, he never translated from one language to another using his own powers of intellect. He dictated the Book of Mormon to a scribe while he was reading words as they were revealed to him through a stone. And section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants was called a translation of a scroll written by the Apostle John, but Joseph doesn't actually have that scroll, nor do we even know where that scroll might be. And we have a similar situation with Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. He didn't have an original text of the Bible. He used the King James Version as a jumping off point to receive revelation about the Bible. The church's website states, quote, Joseph's study of the papyri may have led to a revelation about key events and teachings in the life of Abraham much as he had earlier received a revelation about the life of Moses while studying the Bible. This view assumes a broader definition of the words translator and translation. According to this view, the physical artifacts provided an occasion for meditation, reflection, and revelation. They catalyzed a process whereby God gave to Joseph Smith a revelation about the life of Abraham, even if that revelation did not directly correlate to the characters on the papyri, close quote. I should make clear that this perspective isn't one that the church is saying happened. They're saying it's one way to look at this revelation. So I personally can accept the possibility that 
revelation for scripture can be catalyzed by objects. But does it matter to me that Joseph Smith thought that the papyri he had were actual records of Abraham and Joseph? I mean, part of me feels like a seer would be able to see that, right? But then again, it's possible that God prioritizes truths. And I've definitely seen that happen in my study of the Bible, which we'll talk about in a minute. So I think it's possible that maybe God did use the papyri to inspire Joseph to meditate and be led to reveal the book of Abraham. I'm not really sure, but when it comes to scripture, I do really find it helpful to ask the question I mentioned earlier that comes from the Givens. Quote, does what I'm reading expand my heart and mind, or does it harrow the mind and constrict the heart? Close quote. And there is so much in the book of Abraham and the entire Pearl of Great Price that expands my heart and mind. Terrell Givens says this much better than I can, as usual, but in stating the significance of the Pearl of Great Price to the Latter-day Saint faith, he says, quote, It is in the pages of the Pearl of Great Price that we find the essential foundations of a radically new religious tradition, close quote. It's the pearl of great price that teaches most clearly about premortality and the fall of Adam and Eve as an ascent instead of a tragedy. It's in the pearl of great price that we see God weeping over his children as opposed to the God without passions that was perpetuated for centuries. It's these doctrines that expand my heart and mind and that bring me hope for a relationship with God that looks like a father-daughter relationship. And these are texts that differentiate Latter-day Saint beliefs. Again, as Terrell Givens puts it, quote, Mormonism is absolutely inconceivable apart from this collection of scriptural texts that provided the faith's theological core from the beginning, close quote. And so I love the Pearl of Great Price. And if God used the papyri, something maybe completely irrelevant to reveal so many important truths to Joseph Smith, maybe he can do the same for me. Maybe I can find God in places and experiences where other people say he can't be found. Okay, now let's get into an introduction of the Old Testament. Throughout this podcast, I'll be using the term Hebrew Bible to refer to the Old Testament. And I like that term because that's how this book started. It was a group of scriptures revered as holy by the Hebrew people. And since then, so many faith traditions have adopted this book too, because they follow Jesus and Jesus loved this book. I've spent the last couple of years learning more about the Bible from lots of sources, and I'll share all of those with you at the end here. But probably the most important thing that I've learned is my perspective has been way off as I've studied the Bible in past years. Maybe you remember President Monson's talk where he told the story of a couple who'd moved into a house and they were watching the neighbor hang dirty laundry on the line. And the wife in this new home was really critical of the neighbor for hanging dirty laundry until her husband washed the windows and she realized that it had been her dirty windows that made the laundry appear to be dirty. I have totally found this to be true of my experience with the Hebrew Bible. It's so easy for me to read and get frustrated because what I'm reading doesn't seem to match what I feel like I know about God and how he works in the world. But the more time I've been studying and learning from scholars, the more I've recognized that when I'm tempted to become critical of what the Bible is saying, what I actually need to do is be suspicious about my own view from my window. I need to ask myself what preconceptions I have that are clouding my view of what the biblical contributors were saying. 
So I have here a list of five things that have helped me clean up my window so that I can see the Bible on its own terms. And it's not a complete list. There are lots of other things that will help, but this list has helped me get a start. So here it goes. The first thing that's helped me is to recognize that the Hebrew Bible is really a library of texts that used to be scrolls. So in Jesus' day and for centuries before and after, every synagogue had a library that contained scrolls that were believed to be scripture, and that scripture was read aloud in the synagogue. Nobody took these scrolls home, right? And early on, some centuries before Jesus, it seems like there wasn't a lot of concern among the Hebrew people about which scrolls were official scripture and which ones weren't. They seemed to consider their entire history as a scriptural record of God's dealings with their people. And that time they didn't really seem to be concerned about officiality or canonization. And this actually aligns really well with Latter-day Saint teachings. Joseph F. Smith taught, quote, the canon of scripture is not full. God has never revealed at any time that he would cease to speak forever to men. If we are permitted to believe that he has spoken, we must and do believe that he continues to speak because he is unchangeable. His will to Abraham did not suffice for Moses, neither did his will to Moses suffice for Isaiah. Why? Because their different missions require different instructions. And logically, that is also true of the prophets and people of today. A progressive world will never discover all truth until its inhabitants become familiar with all the knowledge of the perfect one. Close quote. As Latter-day Saints, we're even taught that God's word to us needs to be written and recorded so it can bless the lives of other people like scripture does. Wilford Woodruff said, quote, Write your history and the dealings of God with you in all the world for your own benefit and that of your posterity, for the benefit of the house of Israel, for the benefit of Jew and Gentile, for the benefit of future generations, close quote. And on a similar note, Spencer W. Kimball urged, quote, get a notebook, my young friends, a journal that will last through all time, and maybe the angels may quote from it for eternity, close quote. So when I think of the Hebrew Bible, it helps me to think of it as something that used to be a compilation of scrolls. This book that I can hold in my hand was once a huge library that lots of people authored and edited to make this single volume that I currently have. So that's point number one. The Bible is really a library and it's, and it's a curated library. It's been condensed down. All right, number two, the Bible is written as a story and it's communicating truth in ways that only a story can. So I used to live in a really rural farm community and every morning I'd drive about 15 minutes to the school where I taught and I was always driving around sunrise and in the fall and spring, I remember seeing some of the most breathtaking sunrises that I just had to pull over to take a picture of. But I was always really disappointed with the photo because it didn't capture the rich colors or the sweeping view that I was seeing. And while the scene I was actually in made me feel full of awe and wonder, the photo was just seriously underwhelming. And so sometimes I'd edit the photo to help portray the richness of color I'd seen so that when I showed it to my family, maybe it would bring in them this similar sense of awe and wonder that I had had when I had seen it in real life. So in my study of the Bible, I've been learning that 
The Bible is a story that represents actual history, just like my photo represents an actual sunset. But in order to provide an appropriate understanding of the historical events as understood by the Hebrew people, the Bible uses a variety of literary techniques in order to help us understand. Maybe like I might be using editing software to better depict the sunrise as I experienced it. This idea is much better conveyed by the Hebrew Bible scholar John Salehammer. He says, quote, A photograph of a tree is a good example of the distinction between a text and the event depicted in it. A photograph is a representation of a tree, yet it does not have bark or leaves, nor is the sky behind the tree a real sky. To say that a photograph only represents the tree, but is actually not the tree, doesn't mean the tree never existed, or that the photograph is inaccurate because it just shows one side of the tree. The same can be said of biblical narrative texts. They represent events, but they are not the events themselves. They are texts, which means we stand not before events, but representations of events through words, which all of a sudden draws your attention to the fact that the verbal texture of these narratives is incredibly important because you're not watching security camera footage. Close quote. That verbal texture he mentions is really important because it's the way that the Bible authors and editors are trying to convey truth. Bible scholar Tim Mackey explains it this way, quote, when you're in a movie theater and you forget that you're looking at light on a screen and you're just immersed, you actually aren't paying attention to the director's skill set and techniques. But the moment you watch a movie the third time and you start to notice oh, such and such a character is always on screen left when this happens, or light is always coming from the upper right in the interrogation scenes. It's like you start to realize the craft at work and it heightens your awareness of what's being communicated. Because at the end of the day, the biblical authors don't just want to tell you interesting things that happened. They have a message. They have a theological message that they're trying to communicate. Where are we? Who are we? Who is God? What's the real problem in the world? What's the hope for a solution? They're the big questions of human existence. That's what these narratives are about. But they are addressing those questions and communicating through the medium of these well-crafted narratives. Close quote. So what Tim is saying is that in cinema, techniques like lighting and camera angle, those actually help convey meaning. And as I've been studying the Bible looking for literary techniques, I've noticed how they add meaning to my study of the scriptures. So let me give a couple of small examples. Let's look at names. So I've learned that the Bible uses names as a short form for conveying a lot of information in a single word. For example, when I'm reading the story of Samson and Delilah, it helps to know that the Hebrew meaning for Delilah is weak or languishing. And I personally doubt that her parents gave her that name. But I believe that the biblical authors and editors are using that name as a warning, as a foreshadowing to me as a reader that, watch out, she's going to be Samson's downfall. And I see a similar technique being used with Naomi's sons because their names mean one who is sick and to die. And that is literally their only role in the story of Naomi and Ruth. They're set up to die so we can see Ruth's story happen. And I'm not saying that none of these names are literal. I, I don't know. And I don't actually see a lot of benefit to determining that for sure. What I am saying is that it's really helped me 
as new characters come on the scene to consider their names and ask, what are the biblical authors and editors trying to tell me through the meaning of this name? I've learned that the same kind of symbolism happens with numbers. Ancient people saw numbers as deeply symbolic, and a lot of these number patterns become obvious as we study the use of the numbers in the Bible. So when I do a search on 40 days in the Bible, for example, I find 22 exact results. And the stories that come up are the story of Noah and the ark, and Moses pleading for the Israelite people before God on the mountain, and Elijah fasting on Mount Horeb and Jesus fasting in the wilderness. And there are similarities in these stories, right? There's a time of suffering and hardship and testing. And so when I hear 40 days in the scriptures, it helps me to know this might be a time of testing. I'm prepped to see and think about suffering and maybe even expect redemption and salvation. These numbers can give us little hints as to what the story is about and what meaning I should be taking out of the stories. And a lot of the numbers in the Bible are this way, but I'll give one more example. The word seven in Hebrew is spelled with the same consonants that make the word full or complete. And so when I see seven in the Bible, I start looking for a meaning of completeness. My favorite example of this is in the New Testament. The King James Version reads, quote, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Close quote. Based on my understanding of seven, my personal reading of this is that Peter's actually coming to Jesus asking, should I forgive every time? And Jesus' answer is this emphatic hyperbole reminding us to forgive every trespass times every trespass. We see the seven pattern all over in the creation story. We all know that the creation story takes place over seven days, of course, but it's not just that. It's the repetition of certain phrases that also occurs seven times or in multiples of seven. This pattern of seven in the creation story occurs so many times that Bible scholar Umberto Casuto said, quote, to suppose that all these appearances of the number seven are mere coincidence is not possible. This numerical symmetry is, as it were, the golden thread that binds together all the parts of the section, close quote. And that symmetry is really important because we start to look at seven another way. In the past, people have looked at the number seven in the creation story as evidence of the young earth theory, or that the earth isn't millions of years old. But looking at seven symbolically has led Bible scholars away from that question and away from those conclusions. Instead, looking at the number seven symbolically has led biblical authors toward really interesting ideas like how the number seven relates to the temple in biblical literature. And then when we see that relationship, we start to see the earth as this temple place where God means to rest and communicate and dwell with his children. Okay, so just like we've found patterns and numbers that can help strengthen our understanding of the scriptures and what they're meant to do for us, we can also find patterns with words. So similar words or the pairing of specific words being repeated over and over, those patterns convey important themes. Biblical scholars call this repetition technique, and it's a German word, so please forgive my pronunciation, but they call it Leitwort. 
L-E-I-T-W-O-R-T. And we're so lucky because we have this technology that lets us see repetition in a matter of seconds. When we're reading a book of scripture and we notice a word or a phrase being repeated multiple times, we can easily use an app to search how many times that phrase occurs and in what situation it occurs, it occurs which is super helpful. In biblical times, these scriptures were read aloud. And these repetitions may have been meant to serve as memory aids in memorizing scripture, but there's also a lot of evidence that they were meant to act as what Tim Mackey calls hyperlinks or inner biblical allusions, so that when ancient people heard the same word pattern in one story and then they heard it in another story, they were meant to connect those two stories and figure out how they were related to each other. There are Bible scholars that make cases for these kinds of word links all over the Hebrew Bible, and I think they add a lot of meaning to the way we interpret the scriptures. I'll give one example. So when David meets Goliath, Goliath threatens David. He says, quote, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Close quote. Well, instantly, this verbiage reminds me of Eden, because in Genesis 2, Quote, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof, close quote. So I instantly see a connection. But I could be wrong. Like maybe these phrases appear together hundreds of times through the Bible, right? Maybe I'm not meant to link these two together. So I go to my digital scriptures and I look this, these two phrases up to see how many times they appear together in this way. And in the King James Version, these phrases only appear in these two stories together, the Garden of Eden and David and Goliath. So it seems likely that I'm meant to link these stories together in my mind. And now that I see that parallel, I look for other evidence that could maybe back up this linkage, right? And so with some help via Google, I find that other Bible scholars have found additional parallels between these two stories. I learned, for example, that Goliath's armor is bronze, and the Hebrew word for bronze is closely related to and sounds like the Hebrew word for serpent. And even more interesting, using my interlinear Bible, which I'll talk about in a minute, I discover that Goliath is armed with a coat of mail. But when I look up the Hebrew word for coat of mail, I learn that every other time this Hebrew word is used in the Bible, it's translated not as coat of mail, but as scales, as in the scales of an animal. And so now I'm starting to see a strong comparison between Goliath and the snake in the story of the fall. And then as the story of David and Goliath plays out, David smites Goliath, sending him face forward to the earth. And then David takes Goliath's head. And there seems to be a parallel in the stories there too. Like Goliath, the snake is also forced on his belly. And just as David has struck Goliath's head, God prophesies that the offspring of the woman, quote, will crush your head, close quote. Okay, so maybe you see the parallels, but maybe you're asking, who cares? <laughs> What's the value here? Well, I personally see a bigger story at play here than two guys fighting in a field, or even two nations at war. When I look at the story this way, I see our entire human dilemma, right? I see Goliath as Satan, 
and I see David as a symbol of Jesus. And it's a reminder to me that God hasn't forgotten his promise to his people because Christ, the ultimate snake crusher, is coming to the rescue. This, to me, is an example of one of the ways that the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus Christ. And for me, I have found it to be so important to find Jesus in the Old Testament. Jacob, in the Book of Mormon, puts it so eloquently. He says, quote, For this intent have we written these things, that they may know that we knew of Christ, and we had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. Close quote. Okay, so there's that word pattern thing, and you can start to look for that in your own Bibles. If you want to start using an interlinear Bible, which allows you to see the words in Hebrew next to the words in English, I highly recommend an app called Word Cruncher. And then inside that app is a book called the English Parallel Bible. And you can look up the meaning of the Hebrew words to see how they're translated in other parts of scripture. And that helps you discover the connotations and more subtle meanings for words in the Bible. Okay, one last literary technique before we move on to the other points. Let's look at the type scene. So a type scene is a part of a story that occurs in a pattern that we've become really familiar with in our culture. And the best way for me to explain this is with an example. So in our culture today, a very familiar type scene we see over and over again is the damsel in distress. <laughs> Even by me just saying that, you have an idea in your mind of how a story with this type scene begins and it ends. Because this type scene follows a pattern kind of like this. Some sort of villain imprisons a young maiden and then a knight in shining ar armor comes to rescue her. They fall in love and they live happily ever after. And this is the version of the story that we've come to expect because we've seen it play out in hundreds of books and movies. And we also see versions of this story that play out a little differently than expected. And when that happens, we take away new messages from the story based on those differences. For example, in the movie Shrek, we have the beginnings of the damsel in distress type scene, right? The young maiden, Fiona, she's imprisoned in a tower by a villainous dragon until she can be rescued by her true love. And night after night in shining armor comes to her rescue, only to be burned to ashes. And when she's finally rescued, it's by an ogre who's not in shining armor and who isn't handsome. And we're meant to think about that contrast. And we are trying to figure out whether that difference is significant. And we might even question whether they can still have their happily ever after. Because that play on the type scene is how the story is told and how meaning is conveyed. One of the books I've been reading, The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter, talks about the use of type scenes in the Bible. And Alter talks about how we're meant to compare these scenes and learn from the differences that we find just like we do in the example of Shrek. In his book, he mentions that a really common biblical type scene is a barren woman who miraculously conceives a child that later becomes a hero. He mentions lots of other type scenes too, but the type scene that he focuses on most heavily in this book is the scene of betrothal at a well. So here's the pattern. A man traveling in a foreign land comes to a well and he meets a woman there. One of them draws water for the other, 
and the girl rushes home to bring news of the arrival, and then a betrothal follows, and we see this similar pattern with Isaac and with Jacob and with Moses. This pattern to me is super interesting, and Robert Alter is a Hebrew Bible scholar. He does not focus on the New Testament at all, but other New Testament scholars suggest that it's possible that the New Testament might be playing on this concept of the type seen in the story of the woman at the well, because the woman at the well story follows this type seen pattern in a lot of ways. For starters, Jesus is traveling through a foreign land and he comes to a well and he meets a woman there. In fact, the well that he comes to is Jacob's well, who was betrothed here centuries earlier. And Jesus asks the woman to draw water for him. And then he asks her to bring her husband to him. To me, this seems like a super bizarre thing for him to bring up. Unless Jesus is intentionally bringing it up, knowing that the Hebrew people are expecting at a well to see something related to a wedding or a betrothal. But instead of that typical pattern that we see in most of the type scenes, we learn that this woman has experienced a series of failed marriages and broken covenants. It's a devastating break from the type scene. It's a very unexpected turn of events. And then we see Jesus reveal himself to this woman as the Messiah. And this is where we've returned to the type scene and we see the expected behavior. The woman rushes from the well so quickly, in fact, that she leaves her water pot and she takes the good news to her city. It's interesting to me that the main element missing from the type scene in the above example is, of course, a betrothal. But I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that we're meant to see it as a type of betrothal because right before this story, we see John the Baptist describing Jesus to his followers as the promised bridegroom. And then right after this scene at the well and Jesus spending time with the people in this community, Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana. There's a lot of marriage stuff happening in this section, which I think is intentional. It's meant to point us to the truth that Jesus is the covenant keeping bridegroom. Where this woman has been failed by so many of her husbands, or maybe where this woman has failed so many of her husbands, and where all other leaders have failed Israel, Jesus is the one that remembers and keeps his covenants. For me, this story, when seen in this way, is a reiteration of God's promise as told by Isaiah, quote, fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, for thy maker is thine husband, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken, and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused. But with great mercies will I gather thee. Close quote. Understanding these literary techniques has been so helpful to me, because the Bible is really tricky. Unlike the Book of Mormon, we don't get a lot of helpful statements like, and thus we see. The Bible almost never comes out and explicitly says, this is what you should think about this story. <laughs> and for that reason, literary techniques have helped me see the way that Bible authors do things like separate the good guys from the bad guys. And viewing these stories by looking at literary techniques as clues has really changed the way I read the Bible. 
All right, we're finally to number three. Number three, the Bible was written by a group of people embedded in a culture very different from ours. So every time I've started reading Genesis, I've always been kind of annoyed by the phrase where God divided the waters above the firmament from the waters under the firmament. It made zero sense to me. I had no idea what was being said. And then I started reading biblical commentaries that talked about the historical culture of the Bible. Ancient Mesopotamians believed that the sky above the earth was made of a hard substance that held back waters. Egyptian art even depicts gods holding up the sky and other gods boating on top of the waters above the sky. I don't know why it never occurred to me that it makes sense to think that there are waters above the sky. Of course it makes sense because the skies like the waters are blue and water comes out of them. And our sky or the firmament was in the minds of the Hebrew people, a hard vault protecting the earth. But for a while, this was really problematic for me because we know now that the sky isn't hard. It's made up of layers of gas and the water that comes down from the sky isn't above the sky. It's in the sky. I mean, the Bible got this wrong. (laughs) And doesn't that matter? I was thinking, doesn't it make a difference that the Bible, which is supposed to be the word of God, is working from this worldview that isn't true? Because it seems like a real prophet and seer would have been able to explain how the universe actually works without having to rely on this faulty worldview. It even reminds me a little bit of the problem with Joseph Smith and the book of Abraham, right? Why does God allow his prophets to operate based on inaccurate assumptions? So I spent a lot of time rethinking the Genesis story, and I thought about an alternative Genesis story. So what if the story of the creation were told in terms of light and atoms and quarks and dark matter? What if it were a thorough explanation of exactly how the earth was formed and over what period of time and a description of the combinations of atoms that were used to form the ingredients necessary for life? Would that be better? Would I be able to get more out of that story? And I feel like the answer to that is 100% no, definitely not, because I wouldn't understand any of it. I can barely get through these biblical commentaries, let alone a scientific paper that explains the details of concepts that I don't even have a basic understanding of. Bible scholar John Walton states, quote, It is no surprise that Israel believed in a solid sky and that God accommodated his communication to that model in his communication to Israel. Close quote. Based on the stories I read in the Bible, this pattern seems really consistent. It seems like God operates through people's current worldviews, whatever those are and however they change, to share with his people the truths that he prioritizes. And I actually find that really encouraging because I believe in a God that lets us tell his story even through our narrow and flawed human perspectives. And I believe in a God that also wants us to learn through our own experiences the laws of nature and how things work, but that he prioritizes the truth of our purpose here and that he wants to let us know what that is. And that gets us to the next point, which is number four. The Bible is a story with a specific agenda. And we need to be careful not to superimpose our own agendas on it. So let me just explain this with a little silly story. 
I once went to a friend's house whose wall was covered with tons of photos of their really large family. And in the center of all those photos was a vinyl wall art display that said, all because two people fell in love. And another friend that was there with us turned to me and (laughs) made a sly joke about the inaccuracy of that statement and the biological realities of procreation. (laughs) And my friend wasn't wrong about that. But she was misreading that statement as an expression of how the family came to be instead of why the family came to be. She was bringing to that statement her own ideas of what the statement was trying to say. And that sentiment on the wall is definitely meant to be read as a statement of purpose. It's not a how-to manual. It's important for me to not read into the Bible something that isn't there. This truth is really beautifully explained by Pastor Dan Kimball in his book, How Not to Read the Bible. He says, quote, when you and I open the Bible in Genesis, we immediately want to know the answers to our contemporary questions. However, these questions were not the reason or purpose behind what he communicated, close quote. The Bible is really, first and foremost, a story of God's interactions with people in the world he created. And It's meant to convey identity, purpose, meaning, and a mission, and it's important for us not to superimpose our own meanings or what we want the Bible to say onto the Bible. Okay, last point, number five. The Hebrew Bible points to Jesus. It has helped me so much to remember this single point. It's the most important one. Tim Mackey, the same scholar that I've quoted over and over again in this episode, once said in an interview, quote, when it comes to the Hebrew scriptures for me, the reason I read them is because I follow Jesus. And Jesus explained who he was in the light of the story that those texts are telling. I mean, he actually made it so clear that if you don't understand these texts, you don't understand him or anything he's saying. What he says is often so cryptic, it's like watching the third Lord of the Rings movie without even knowing that movies one and two exist. It's just like, it's absurd. So when I look at what Jesus and his apostles are reading and what they appeal to the most, what they appeal to are the books that are in what's called the Protestant Old Testament, close quote. This is such an important reminder to me of why I have to read and understand the Hebrew Bible. It foretells of and points to Jesus, and it's also the only way that I can make sense of so much of what Jesus says and does in the New Testament, and I want to understand what Jesus says and does, so I feel compelled to work, to study, and understand the Hebrew Bible. We are done! Those are the five things that I feel like have helped cleaned up my window of the Hebrew Bible and have helped me understand it better. One more time, they are, number one, the Bible is really a library. Number two, the Bible is written as a story with literary techniques that carry meaning. Number three, the Bible is embedded in an ancient culture. Number four, the Bible was written with its own specific agenda, not our agenda. And number five, the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus. In future episodes, I'll refer to these points to emphasize how these perspectives help inform my understanding of the reading for that section. But if you're like me and you want to figure some of this stuff out on your own, 
I want to list a few resources that have been really helpful for me. So here they are. The first one is the Bible Project. Honestly, if you listen to the Bible Project and nothing else, I would never have to do this podcast again. (laughs) It's not just a podcast, but it's also a website full of blogs. It's an app now, actually, and they have lots of videos. They even have a classroom that offers free graduate-level courses on the Bible, several of which I've taken and are incredible. I cannot recommend this resource highly enough. It's created by two Protestants, one's a Bible scholar and the other's a former pastor, and they do such a good job. There will be a few things you'll find that are different from a Latter-day Saint perspective. They don't refer to the fall as fortunate, right? They see it as tragic, so that's one major difference. And the other major difference you'll see is that they feel like the temple has been fulfilled in Jesus. But I have found so much help using this resource. The next helpful book is a book by Dan Kimball. I mentioned this already. It's called How Not to Read the Bible. The full title is How Not to Read the Bible, Making Sense of the Anti-Women, Anti-Science, Pro-Violence, Pro-Slavery, and Other Crazy-Sounding Parts of Scripture. This book is also by a Protestant pastor, and it's excellent. He deals so well with... showing how he grapples with these difficult issues. And it's an easy read and it has so much wonderful information. I've also been reading The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter. So Robert Alter is a professor of Hebrew and comparative studies at Berkeley. He grew up Jewish, so his perspective is not from the Christian perspective, but he does have some really interesting things to bring to the Hebrew Bible. And this book is a has been a much harder read for me. It's short, but I'm not done with it because it's just difficult. In fact, the first few chapters are really difficult. I found myself pulling out a dictionary a lot, but it does really help modern readers identify literary patterns that the biblical authors intentionally use to convey meaning. So that's, and it's actually a work that a lot of biblical scholars refer to. So it is pretty foundational. And then finally, for understanding Hebrew words, I already mentioned that you should download the uh, Word Cruncher app. It's it's actually an app created by BYU, and it can be downloaded for free from the App Store. And once you have that downloaded, you just need to add the free English Parallel Bible, and that will be helpful. You can also use the Logos app um, or the Logos software online, and that does the same thing. It shows you the Hebrew words along with the English translation. Okay, we made it. (laughs) That's it. I really hope these resources and the paradigms I mentioned help you as much as they've helped me in your ability to understand the Hebrew Bible. It's actually blown my mind how dramatically these paradigms have improved my understanding. And I hope the same thing is true for you. Thanks to Arlene Cook, Emily Bunnell, Sarah Wells, and Stephen Estes, whose peer review and research assistance has significantly improved this podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your podcast app. It really does help. Thanks so much.